0: Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Alexi White. Like all of us on the Ontario Loud team, many of you out there are cooped up at home for the foreseeable future. With less socializing to do, there's nothing like curling up with a good, thought-provoking book. That's why we at Ontario Loud are putting together an occasional podcast series looking at great Canadian politics and policy books of the recent past. On today's pod, we're delighted to be joined by Professor Donald J. Savoie. Canada Research Chair in Public Administration and Governance at the University of Moncton. Professor Savoy is the author of 47 books, but he's here to discuss his most recent book, Democracy in Canada, The Disintegration of Our Institutions, published in 2019. It's just been shortlisted for the Donald Smiley Prize, an annual prize for the best Canadian politics books of the year. In recognition of his prolific contributions to the field of public administration, Professor Savoy was made an Officer of the Order of Canada and a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. He has received more honors than I have time to recount, from the Killam Prize in Social Sciences to eight honorary doctorates. Professor Savoy, welcome to the pod.
1: Well, thank you very much, Alex, for having me here. Delight to be here.
0: Well, it's great to have you. I'm really excited. My uh, my exposure to your work goes back pretty far, actually. Um, I first read uh, Governing from the Center, which was, I think, published, would have been around 2000, something like that. Um, and I was in high school at the time, and uh, I then picked up uh, Breaking the Bargain about uh, the relationship between the civil service and, and ministers and the role of the civil service and how it's been changing over time. And uh, certainly got a first hand experience of that later on when I worked in the civil service in Ontario, and uh, a lot of it rang true to me. And then the first one of your books that I own myself was uh, Whatever Happened to the Music Teacher How Government Decides and Why. So that was uh, also heavily focused on civil service and, de- and decision making in government. And I'm really happy to have the chance to meet you and to go over your latest book, which you consider to be your magnum opus, you write in the preface. Uh, so I'm interested. What you set out to achieve with the book and how you feel it relates to your previous works.
1: Well, thank you very much, Alex, for those kind words. Yes, this book, when I set out to uh, write it, it brings together my earlier works because I focused over my academic career on two themes our institutions, our political institutions, and regionalism, uh, what fuels the Canadian identity. And so, this this book, I call it a magnum open, It it brings together those two. Themes and try to make sense of where we are in Canada by joining how our, our institutions work and how our uh, regionalism um, is captured and dealt with. So that's the essence of the book.
0: So, you write about uh, a number of challenges then in the book that threaten to uh, extend what you call Canada's democratic deficit. And I think a lot of our listeners can appreciate there's been a lot of wringing of hands over uh, the last few years about all kinds of aspects of our democratic deficit, uh, which you touch on in the book from from the media to the role of cabinet to parliament, all these kinds of things. You write about how the greatest challenge that you see is, is regionalism and uh, that we lack a capacity in our national institutions to accommodate regional circumstances and promote uh, regional equality. You talk about the constitution, political institutions, the executive, as well as the bureaucracy is all showing different symptoms of the problem. So maybe if we could start with the constitution, because I I found that the history uh, that you go back into fascinating in the book. So the story many of us learn in grade school is that basically a bunch of old, wise white guys sat down in uh, Charlottetown and uh, Quebec and, and eventually London and uh, agreed that you know, a federation was clearly better for everybody and being as wise as they were, that they could just come together and create this wonderful country called Canada. But you read about how regional politics really was at the core of the constitutional discussions. And I'm interested, you could tell us a bit about how, how regional politics really played out in the
1: 1860s. Well, great question. If you go back in the 1860s, Quebec and Ontario could not make it work. They had a dual majority. Uh, they, uh, the capital kept moving. It was a moving target. The government couldn't survive. They just could not make it work. They came to the conclusion, and actually they were quite wise. Sir John, Sir John A. Macdonald and Sir Jean Cartier came to the conclusion that they would have to look elsewhere to make it work. So they looked to maritime provinces and say they could become the honest broker. And so they went to Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, came to Charlottetown, and uh, Prince Edward Island. When they looked at the deal that was recorded in, in Quebec, they said, "No, we don't want to be a part of it because it doesn't. There's nothing in it to protect smaller provinces." Newfoundland walked away, said, "This, this is not going to work for us." New Brunswick voted against Confederation. And Nova Scotia voted two or three times, not in a referendum, because that was refused. Voted two or three times on Confederation, and all. Every time, Nova Scotia said no. And so the only two provinces that actually said yes with any degree of enthusiasm was Ontario and Quebec and principally Ontario. And Confederation worked very well for Ontario and still does. And so when Western Canada became alive and so on, the Buffalo province, as it was then called, Alberta, Saskatchewan and part Northwest Territory said, we would like to join Confederation. And the government in Ottawa said, well, uh, you can join, but not as a big province like that, because it will challenge Ontario. So you have to split. Hence, that's why we have Alberta and Saskatchewan and the Northwest Territories. So this country was really designed by Sir John McDonald and Sir John Cartier, to solve their problem. And they brought in the other regions as honest broker. In 1865-66, nobody would have believed that Ontario and Quebec would join forces on any issue, so they felt they'll be it'll be deadlock. The maritime will be played to their advantage. Well, Ontario and Quebec have learned to work with one another quite nicely, and so uh, Sir Johnny e. Macdonald and Sir Cartier looked for institutions. They went to England and they said, let's bring English institutions uh, to Canada. Unlike. The Americans, the Americans started from scratch. we we got to build institutions because we broke away from England. Those institutions don't work for us, so we they came up with new institutions. We did not. We essentially brought those institutions lock, stock, and barrel. And so we have a Senate that looks like the House of Lords. And so we haven't built in into our entire constitution, into our institution, a capacity to speak on behalf of the regions. If you sit in Ottawa, the world starts in Quebec and ends in Ontario. That is how Western Canada and Atlantic Canada feels. That is not how Ontario and Quebec feels, obviously. But that's been the essence. As I think it's Robertson Davies that says, uh, we don't have a Canadian identity, we have regional. And so we've made up arrangements to deal with regional tensions and some have been fairly costly.
0: That's great. I think you, you note know in the book at one point that Sir John A. MacDonald actually anticipated that the provinces could cease to exist over time. And he actually envisioned a like a unitary Canada. Um, maybe skipping ahead to the last half of the 20th century, you write about hyphenated federalism, and you just mentioned that we've come up with all kinds of ways to kind of get around the problems that were embedded in the Constitution, especially when it comes to regionalism. Not having these these effective institutions from the start to deal with the the stresses of of different regions across the country. How what is hyphenated federalism or hybrid federalism, and what have its um, impacts been on our our democracy over sort of the past 70 years or so now?
1: Excellent question. I love it. Yes, let's go back to um, the early days. Sir John MacDonald didn't want a federation. It's clear. He said it. He wasn't. He didn't hope for a unitary. He actually predicted it. He said, "We, we this, this federation is, is going to evolve into a unitary state. That is really what he favoured, because he didn't see any wisdom of having a federal system. In fact, if you look at the BNA Act, it gave Ottawa the power to disallow provincial jurisdiction. They were essentially colonies, m- much like Canada was colony to, uh, to Great Britain, well, the provinces were viewed as very junior partners. When, when Sir John Macdonald went to Nova Scotia to deal with discontent about uh, the Federation, he didn't even talk to the Premier. He didn't even look at the Premier. He, looked, he talked to the local MPs because he didn't think that the Premiers had any voice, any credibility. Now, the Canadian Constitution as Britain is very rigid because we, didn't, we couldn't look to, uh, you know, to Great Britain because its constitution is not written. And so they never came up with a way to amend the Constitution. I've called leading you know, historians to say, why was that left out? Nobody really knows. So we can only left to speculate that Sir John McDonald said, well, it was, a, it was legislation from the British Parliament. If it needs to be amended, it'll be amended. Who cares about the provinces? And so because it was rigid, because we couldn't really amend it, because we realized over time that the provinces were the key players in social policy and education, healthcare, and so on, the provinces would left with very little funding for their responsibilities. Ottawa had a great deal of funding, so in in order to deal with the situation that you couldn't amend the constitution, that you had to deal with enormous economic challenges, they came up with this plan that still applies to this day of signing federal provincial agreements whether it's in Medicare, whether it's in economic development, there was a time, less so now, but there was a time that was, there was not a government department in the province New Brunswick that did not have a federal provincial agreement. And so what does that do? Well, it solved the problem. If you want to get things done, if you're dealing with a depression, dealing with you know, enormous challenges, well, you can turn to a federal provincial agreement and that's what we did. And that's fine. It solved the rigidity of our constitution. The problem is that for democracy, it created new challenges. Ministers, politicians to this day still don't know the finer points of what's getting done because it was like negotiating a treaty. So the province in New Brunswick, the province of Ontario, went to Ottawa and negotiated programs. And so if ministers or House of Commons wanted to ask questions said, well, this was negotiated, we can't undo that. And so it's not that simple. It's not a, a government program, it's a federal provincial program. So to, to amend it, to change it, to undo it, to do it again, requires all kinds of negotiations it puts policymakers in the back seat and so the price to pay in terms of accountability in terms of transparency is pretty high that's the price to pay hyphenated friend solved the problem of how to get things done but it created a new, create a new set of problems
0: there's a quote in your book i paraphrasing it, but I think it's uh, Pierre Trudeau who said something along the lines of that, uh, you know, a fundamental condition of representative democracy is that citizens know who is responsible for the decisions that are being made so that they can hold them accountable in elections. I think you note that uh, he maybe said that in opposition, but when he was prime minister, he continued with these, these same trends, which I guess is a theme of prime ministers throughout Canadian history in the last 70 years. But Regionalism uh, uh, is interesting because I come at it from the Ontario context and certainly working both on the political side of government in Ontario as well as the civil service, regional tensions within Ontario are are a real real issue that have to be dealt with. Governments often can get a a majority by focusing their votes in parts of Ontario. So I'm interested uh, in your thoughts on to what extent your arguments about regionalism uh, extend to to provincial politics. Uh, We, you know, we don't have uh, senates uh, to deal with some of these regional issues at the provincial level. Do you see regional tensions within provinces as being akin to those at the federal level?
1: Absolutely. And the point you made about Ontario, absolutely, that was made to me by an Ontarian, a very senior public servant from Ontario. who said, well, your, your regionalism applies to Ontario just as much as it applies to the Federation, because Northern Ontario has as many problems with Southern Ontario as Atlantic Canada or Western Canada may have. Point taken. It's not strictly an Ontario phenomenon as well, because I can tell you with certainty that Cape Breton does not feel part of Nova Scotia. There's tremendous tension between Cape Breton. In fact, a few years ago, Cape Breton sought to become a separate province. So our institutions are geared for first past the post, the majority, the majority votes happen to be where people are. And so there's little capacity in our institutions to deal with regionalism, unlike the United States, unlike Australia, unlike Russia, unlike Germany, where their institutions are designed to accommodate regional issues much, much more readily than our institutions. Uh,
0: and, and what about urban and rural divide? You know, there's, there's a lot of people who will say, well, sure, the Liberals didn't win a lot of seats, you know, west of Ontario in the last federal election, but uh, there are a lot of places where they, they perform quite well. They may not have won a plurality of the votes, but especially in urban areas, there are a lot of people voting for the NDP and for the Liberals in Calgary and Edmonton, for example.
1: No question, you're on to something, Alex. No question about that. I would go even further. We often talk about economic challenges uh, in Atlantic Canada. The unemployment rate in Moncton and Halifax equals that of Ontario equals that of Hamilton and so the issue of economic challenges in Atlantic Canada, and I suspect in Western Canada, is less about Atlantic Canada versus Ontario. It is more about rural Atlantic Canada versus urban Atlantic Canada. And so, and the same applies in the province of Ontario. You have rural areas in Ontario that are having some pretty serious challenges as well as Quebec and as well as the Western provinces. So the divide is as much urban rural as it is Ontario versus, you know, versus Western Canada. And so, but it comes back to the, it comes back to the basic issue of how our institutions are built. If you're leader of a political party, you want to win power in Ottawa and you have your posters at court, your key advisors, they will tell you, and they would be right in telling you, that you win power in Ontario and you win a majority government in the province of Quebec. What that means is that we don't have a capacity, again, to speak to the smaller regions, the smaller provinces. You win Toronto, GTA, Montreal, Vancouver, you win government, you win power. And, and once, once that's done, once you arrive in Ottawa, your influence, your key policy makers are urban, from urban areas. You overlay that with your senior public servants who happen to have gone to University, university of Toronto, or Queens or University of Montreal. Uh, you overlay that which have a more of a urban bias. So the, our whole institutions have this bias and, and, and there's nothing to counterweight, to act as a counterweight to that bias. That's the issue. It applies to urban rural as much as it applies to different regions of the country.
0: So maybe if we can turn a bit to politics, maybe we can talk a little bit about the concentration of power that you've documented for many years now in the Prime Minister's office. Uh, and I love that you refer to uh, the Prime Minister in his courtiers, because uh, I don't think people use that kind of language in government, uh, but I, I, I like it a lot. So you, you talk about, uh, not just in your latest book, but in your books uh, previously, going back for a while now, how this has caused an erosion of other critical democratic institutions, Uh, it's affected parliament, it affects cabinet, but you also write about the sorry state of political parties in Canada. So for instance, there's a growing reliance on polling and branding among those courtiers around the prime minister, and so less of a need perhaps to rely on your strong regional cabinet minister to to have their finger on the pulse of a a specific region or even your local MPs to tell you uh, what's going on uh, in their areas and the leader also now as a result of this branding approach and what you call the sort of the continual uh, election campaign that we're always in now, the leader more and more defines the party rather than the other way around with the the party defining the leader. So how has this all changed the role of political parties in our democracy? And and how do you see that as adding to the democratic deficit that you that you uh, talk about?
1: Well, it's had a profound impact. You know, there was there was a time and your listeners, even the younger ones will remember it. There was a time when we had some pretty powerful personalities, whether it's Alan J. McCacken in Nova Scotia, Don Jameson uh, in Newfoundland, Jean Marchand in Quebec, Otto Lang in Saskatchewan, David McDonald, John Turner in Ontario. He had some very powerful, Eugene Whelan, we knew who, what he stood for. Uh, they brought to the table their own brand, their, bo- their own biases, their own views. I challenge your listeners to think of powerful regional personalities now. They're not allowed. There's only one brand that that's allowed. That's the Trudeau brand or Andrew Scheer brand, or it'll become the Peter McKay brand. So powerful regional personalities are not tolerated. And so that reflects on the ability of political parties to recruit talent. And so political parties are left to be election day organization, little more. They're left to raise money. And that's about it. And members sense that. So there's a collapse in membership. Uh, you know, in terms of political parties, and this has been well documented. The reason is very simple. Why would somebody join a political party? I've heard from people who read my work and so on have told me, I don't want to join a political party because I've, because if I do, I'll be penalized. If I do, I will not be now. It works against you to get any kind of appointment. If you become targeted as a partisan, it haunts you for the rest of your life. If you're a liberal once, you're a liberal forever. And so we debased our political parties to such a point that they've become shells of what they used to be. they become, they're there to raise money. In terms of governing from the center, the point you started with, you know, I like to tell this story because when I started working on that book in 97, 98, I had no idea how it would turn out, seriously. I had an interview with a senior cabinet minister in the Kitan government who over breakfast, I remember vividly, He looked at me and said, you academics have it all wrong. Cabinet is not a decision-making body. It's a focus group for the prime minister. And that jarred me. And then I started doing interviews in Ottawa and so on. And sure enough, that's what it's become. Now, two different governments, two different political parties, a war in Afghanistan, in both cases, it never went to cabinet. Imagine that. I mean, if you go back to the Pearson era and so on, there was a time when cabinet mattered. It matters less now. Again, because of the brand. If you hurt the Trudeau brand, you hurt the government. And so it's that. I got an interesting email about a week or so ago, somebody had just, a a former senior official in a provincial government wrote to me, had just finished a book and said, I'm gonna tell you a story to make make the point about the role of the prime minister or the role of the premier. At cabinet, it was a cabinet meeting. They were gonna break for lunch. They went around what should we order for lunch? Somebody said Chinese food, somebody said a pizza. The premier said Kentucky Fried Chicken. At the end, only Ken- Kentucky Fried Chicken came in the room. Said that, it, that big <laughs> volume. volume. This was a senior, senior public servant who told me that story. Everybody rallied to what the premier wanted. But that defines how politics works these days. I mean, what matters is the prime minister or the premier. If the head of the prime minister or the premier goes, the government goes, as we well know. You can lose a minister, you can lose two, you can lose three. We've seen that. You can't lose the prime minister and and the premier. And given the role of the media, the 24-hour news cycle, 24-hour news channel, the social media, there's so much pressure on the government to come up with answers and quickly that the only one that can provide answers and quickly is the premier or the prime minister. So the media will, will run to the premier, to premiers or to the prime minister. Hence, ministers are playing second fiddle.
0: And I, I agree with all of that, um, and I've seen it myself to, to, to the largest extent in the Ontario context. But I, I think one of the, the interesting pieces of your book is you explore other countries uh, with similar parliamentary systems where they have not seen the level of control over backbenchers, the level of control over cabinet that the the centre of government has. Certainly these these changes, the the centralization of power is uh, something you can trace in in Britain, in Australia, for example, but um, they are still much more willing uh, to speak out against their parties in those those parliamentary systems. So what, what is it about Canada? Why are we why are we further ahead on this spectrum compared to these other places?
1: Well, you're right. We, there's been uh, fellow academics in Britain and Australia Australia's written extensively about governing from the centre, taken up on the theme and so on, and there's evidence of that. Tony Blair used to run uh, for government. His cabinet secretary, in an interview with me, Sir Robin Butler, told me that the prime minister said, I want to move the Bank of England away from the influence of government to make it an independent body. And uh, the cabinet secretary told the prime minister, well, that's a cabinet decision. prime minister said, uh, uh, I'll make, a, I'll ring around, I'll make some phone calls and we'll sort that out. It never went to cabinet. So, so governing from the centre is not just a Canadian phenomenon, not by any stretch. However, in Canada, I think that we've pushed it further. The question you're asking, how do you explain that? Mm-hmm. I think an important reason, again, comes back to regionalism. You have to keep a tight, tight handle on regionalism. It can flare up in Quebec. You see it flaring up in Western Canada. In Atlantic Canada, if the region had the economic, economic cloud to flare up, it would flare up, I can assure you. And so regionalism is something that has to be managed very, very, very carefully. And there's a view in the prime minister's office that they're the only ones above the fray, the only ones that can manage these regional tensions that can flare up at any moment. I think that goes a long way in explaining why we pushed the envelope in government from the center so far
0: you also make the point that one of the ways we used to deal with some of this regionalism was by having these strong voices in cabinet or even as as MPs and that and sometimes regionalism can be helped if you have an escape valve like the ability of members of parliament from a specific place to be able to speak up and say look like we you know we're still liberals let's say in this case but but our region is getting a not getting a good deal
1: yes and a case in point well there's several cases in point but li- let me give you a couple. In the Mulroney government, Don Mazankowski had tremendous influence. Everybody in Ottawa knew it. Everybody in the bureaucracy knew it. He was called the chief operating officer, the COO of government. When an economic policy was born in Ottawa, he made sure that the voice from Western Canada could be heard. John Crosby played a similar role in Atlantic Canada. It was very powerful. And so they brought this this level of uh, commitment to the region at the cabinet table before the prime minister and so on. In fact, Prime Minister Mulroney in the eulogy to John Crosby made that very point. And so, but we've lost that capacity. It's not a question of political parties. Maz mm-hmm. was a conservative, Crosby was a conservative, uh, Alan Jay was liberal. It transcends political parties. We just do not tolerate regional brands. We do not tol- tolerate brands other than the prime minister's brand. And there's a price to pay.
0: Turning maybe if we can to the civil service, uh, which you also talk about in your book, and you yourself are a former uh, federal public servant. Uh, you worked your way up, I believe, to assistant deputy minister and treasury board. And you've written extensively, obviously, about the public service in a number of your books and the many failed attempts at reform, some of them misguided, others maybe less misguided, but uh, still unsuccessful. And I, I mentioned I myself was a civil servant in the public service in Ontario, and um, your chapters on the public service, your previous books, and the challenges that, that you documented certainly hit close to home for me. Uh, particularly in this latest book, you, um, you have an excerpt of concerns expressed by young professionals in Ottawa in the public service, and it was, it was eerie. Like Those, those were sort of the exact things that I would speak to my, my colleagues, uh, you know, new public servants my age in the Ontario government about. And it sounds like not a lot of progress is being made to address some of these concerns. So people have trouble generally understanding why it's so hard to reform the public service. I mean, why, why is it so hard to empower people uh, you know, in line ministries to feel like they're actually making a difference? Why is it so hard to, to provide a level of accountability and transparency to the public in Canada without creating layers of bureaucracy? And as you say, people who turn cranks that are attached to nothing at all. Why is this so hard?
1: Alex, that's a lovely question. Thank you for asking, asking it. it. It gets to the core of, of what I've been trying to do in my career. Public service has lost its moorings. The public service facing tremendous challenges. It is being belittled. Bureaucracy bashing is evident. Now, we have witnessed over the past two months why a public service is important. That when we, collective action is needed, Government has to step up. The civil service has to step up. They are the ones that can speak to collective action and make it, make it work. And I think if there's something that comes out of this crisis, is that we can even start to understand the importance of a well-functioning public service. Why is it that we've had some issues? Why is it that it's not taken seriously? Why is it that something has gone wrong? Let me try to respond to that. In early 1980s, starting with Margaret Thatcher, certainly with Ronald Reagan, certainly with Brian Mulroney, they came to office with a bias. The bias was clear. There's something wrong with bureaucracy. It is not nearly as efficient, as well run as a private sector, a large private sector firm. So they went to the public service and said, you're the problem, not politicians, you are the problem. So you have to change the ways you go about your work. And so we are asking you to act, behave, and work like the private sector. As one, one senior public servant in Ottawa told me at that time, he said, you know, what public servants need to tell politicians, but none of us are saying it, is that heal thyself before you start healing us. And I, I took that i thought it's a very wise statement essentially politicians were telling civil servants public servants we'll continue to make silly decisions we'll continue to make costly errors but that's not us that's on you so fix the way you do things fix your operations we'll take care of policy and so we turned over a number of well instead of a 10-volume manual on running personnel offices or human resources, we condensed it into a pamphlet. Public servants, here, now you have have authority. But we didn't give them authority. We said, you know, don't fuel the blame game. Don't screw up, but we want you to run like the private sector. But don't screw up, because if you screw up, we take the blame. We get asked in the media. We are ultimately responsible. So for the love of God, run it like a business, but don't screw up. How how in the name of God can you run a government of Canada or a government of Ontario or a government of Alberta? How can you do that without screwing up? How can you take risk without screwing up? So they were telling the public service, you take risk, but don't screw up. But that's a contradiction. And so the public service dealt with this in this way. They said, well, if we're not going to be directly accountable, because politicians didn't want that, we're going to have to find some ways to pretend that there's market forces. We're going to have to find some ways to assess our performance so we could have incentive. So we started generating evaluation reports, the performance reports. They are meaningless. I've read these evaluation reports. They're, excuse the expression, but they're bullshit, most of them. Yeah. They, they, they mean nothing. There's not, you know, you look after report after report and there's nothing wrong. Everything is working. And if there's something slightly wrong, well, we'll fix it. Well, there's no such thing. Performance in government, if you happen not to perform at the task, you don't get laid off, you, don't, you just keep on going. And Canadians see that and Canadians that. there's something basically wrong here. So the public service reacted without the tools to take risk and be responsible for it, they started to circle the wagons. Here's a case in point, and it applies to Canada as well. John F. Kennedy was president. He had 17 layers of bureaucracy. Today, Donald Trump has 77. So we've got from 17 layers of bureaucracy in the United States to 77. In Canada, we're, we're done about the same thing. Go in government, you now see a deputy minister, associate deputy minister, senior assistant deputy, associate, senior, so, uh, associate deputy minister, go down the list. There are layers upon layers upon layers that we created to circle mm-hmm. the wagons. Now, when Donald Trump, and uh, just so your listeners understand, I am not a fan of Donald Trump. I really am not. But when he talks about the deep state, There's a level of frustration that politicians have about bureaucracy. Now, there's light at the end of the tunnel. I think the light at the end of the tunnel is that Canadians over the past two months have taken, have learned, have got a civic lesson the likes of which they've never seen. You have to go back to the Second World War because we've seen some pretty competent people running collective action in Canada.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I hope that that is one of the lessons people are taking away and seeing the, I mean, the people who, uh, who question the need for government, uh, government is certainly making a strong case for why is uh, it is necessary at this time and why smart technocratic solutions are needed at certain times.
1: Um, that's a bit of a long winded answer, but you <laughs> no, kind of, no, no. you, you kind of got me going with that question <laughs> because it's a, it's a central question in my work and you got me a bit agitated, but I got long winded, but that's that's, that's how I see the world unfolding.
0: No, it's great. And I encourage everyone who's listening to go back and read. I mean, you, you, this is a, a scratching the surface of the work you've done. So, I mean, there's so much more to this question and to, to those answers. Uh, and maybe we can bring the things we've discussed together for a second, because I'm interested in sort of if there's a thread that ties together our conversations about, we've talked about cabinet, we've talked about parliament, we've talked about uh, the bureaucracy, our uh, political institutions, we've talked about the, you know, the constitution, regionalism. Um, so maybe you can sort of help us see, like, what what is there? Is there is there something that sort of unites your sense of like what is causing our democratic deficit uh, and unites these different topics we've talked about?
1: Well, we always become comfortable with the status quo. When I say we, I mean all of us. I mean public servants, Canadians, citizens. When we have a, a set pattern that's comfortable, we marry to it. We don't like change. We don't like sudden change. And that's human nature. And so institutions are like, in many ways, individuals. They become comfortable in the path and so on. Something happens to jar them. Something happens to say, well, this, this however we might like this path, however we might like this status quo, we can't make it work anymore. Let me give you a classic point. I mean, Canadian, federal, uh, Canadian institutions work fine. The Great Depression... 1930s said, geez, this we don't. Our our government, our institutions don't have the tools to to cope with the challenge. And so, what are we going to do? Well, we came up with federal provincial agreements, hypernated federalism. We we came up with a new path, with a new way of getting things to react to that jarring incident, that jarring development. Now, where, what have we seen that's jarred institutions uh, in recent years? Well, we've seen the 1980s when politicians everywhere on all political persuasion said uh, bureaucracy government bureaucracy you're not working properly we gotta we gotta find a new way and that's when we get that explains why we get so many new public management measures that are really not working to make in my view are making matters worse i do think that we we're experiencing something at the moment uh an historical moment that you and i are witnessing and your listeners I think that will create new opportunities. I see, I see this more in a positive light than a negative. Of course it's painful, but I think it's gonna jar us into rethinking a number of things. That's the positive that can come out of this.
0: That's great. Uh, and so on that theme, sort of looking to the future and where we go from here, you sort of note that in a lot of the solutions to these problems, one of the things that we're going to need is political will. Uh, and that some of the changes that have happened, for instance, the repatriation of the constitution happened because of a prime minister uh, taking sort of a single-minded approach, I am going to get this thing done. Um, Do we have to wait for a prime minister to do that, to fix some of these institutions? I mean, many prime ministers have preached recently, change while in opposition and then backtracked. Uh, You talk in your book about how Paul Martin did that, you talk about how Stephen Harper did that, now how Justin Trudeau has done that. You write that, uh, in short, transformative moments simply do not stand a chance unless prime ministers and their courtiers see merit in them. Are we, are we basically stuck until a prime minister comes along who really wants to change the system? Uh, or is there a role that political parties can play? Uh, is electoral reform something that, that could happen to help this? Um, can the Senate and, the, and Parliament do something themselves to sort of fix things, even, even short of constitutional change or something that large?
1: Well, we are stuck until the prime minister and his courtiers uh, says, look, we need to do things differently. We are stuck. A Great example was Justin Trudeau, I recall vividly in the election campaign when he told Peter Mansbridge, it was ironic, it was his father that started governing from the center. I was delighted to use my term. And he said, I'm, uh, wouldn't it wouldn't be proper if his son undid it. Well, his son did not undo it. His son made governing the center, uh, took it to new heights. In my view, so it is up to the Prime Minister and his courtiers, not political parties, not senior ministers, to set us on a new path. Is that the only thing that's gonna happen? Yes, except that it requires circumstances to force prime ministers and their courtiers to say, look, we we need a new path. Much like you know, Mackenzie King or even an an R.B. Bennett said in the nineteen thirties, we need a new path. And so what are the circumstances that can bring us there, that can force the prime minister and his courtiers to say this 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 is gonna change?
0: So maybe just to finish things off, turning back to sort of the impact of your collected works, have, have they changed government? Do you see, looking back maybe further down the road from now, that there'll be a lasting impact for the future as a result of some of this?
1: Well, yeah, I recall very well. I, was, I think there was three people in, in uh, Harper's PMO, and they had governing from the center. And one of them clearly had read the book because the pages were ruffled up and there were a lot of pages, you know were on the line. And I looked at him, I said, well, Jesus, I hope you've learned something in this book. And he said, yeah, we use it as a manual. That was not the answer I was expecting or I would have liked to hear, but, but, but I said, I think the lasting impact of governing from the center, I put it on the agenda. And that's as much as, it, as an academic can do is to put things on an agenda, on the agenda. And I think it became part of the lexicon. It became part of the, of the story of how Ottawa works. People take it for granted now. Yeah, it's the center. It's governing the center. And I think it had that impact. In fact, one senior public, federal public servants told me uh, the problem with governing from the center before that, I'm not sure it was the case, but now everybody, students that went to university to the study public administration, Maine poli-sci read your book and they come to arrive. Other ones say, that's the way things work. And they assume that's the way it works. And so in a way, this federal public servant was telling me your book did the opposite of what you wanted to do is it, it strengthened the center because people see it as a, well, that's how it works. And that's how they, that's how they behave. That's not what I wanted, but it, I did put it on the agenda. And I think it served that purpose. Thank
0: you so much for, for joining us. Professor Savoy. That was a fantastic conversation.
1: Well, Alex, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to voice my views and uh, you've given me that opportunity. And I, all I can say is thank you
0: wonderful so uh once again the book is democracy in canada the disintegration of our institutions uh by professor donald j subloff
2: and that was ontario loud you might notice that i am not alexi white remember me regular host chris martin we are trying a new, more modular approach to Ontario Lad, where you'll hear different people in the hosting chair. And I'm honestly stoked for it if this episode was any indication. I think we each sort of bring different strengths to the table. And uh, one of the things we want to do is start branching into different formats. And, also, and this way we're going to be able to bring you more podcasts. Um, I also got a note from our research volunteer, Harmon, that we should call this series Loud Reads, as opposed to Ontario Loud Book Club, the very original. I suggested in the previous pod. What do you think? Let us know on Twitter or or at OntarioLadmail at gmail.com. want to thank Dr. Donald J. Savoy for coming on the pod. That was such a fascinating conversation. We will be back next week with two more pods again for you. First with Green Party leader Mike Schreiner. Then later on we'll be talking to Liz Stewart from the Ontario Catholic Teachers Federation about their victory in the labor negotiations. Stay tuned for that. Ontario loud is Sam Andre, Chris Martin, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, Gurmeet Awar Kapoor, Aisha Anwar does our social media. Check out our cool shareables on Twitter this week. Harman Muddy does our research. Stay safe out there, and we will see you next week.